Okay, Psalm 88, and, and I have the New American Standard Bible. Uh, I know there are all kinds of translations represented, but let's read this and be overwhelmed with his emotion. A few things I would encourage you to think about that we will talk about through the evening is how often does he view God as the ultimate reason for his problem. In other words, this psalm does not mention human enemies. It mentions God. Lord, you've poured out your problems upon me. Now, I don't think that's blaming God. We can talk about that in a moment. But he's just stating that God is in control. I want you to also pay attention to uh, how desperate his situation is. How difficult um, his dilemma is. Is desperate and uh, and Scott, you can't criticize my spelling if you come to class, okay? Because may or may not be right. But uh, he's desperate. And then also, um, one of the things that struck me, there are all kinds in the Psalms of allusions to the Exodus. But, but there are going to be allusions to the Exodus in this, but in a different way. So be looking for these things. Okay, let's begin. A song. A psalm of the sons of Korah. For the choir director, according to Mahalath, Linoth, a mascal of Heman, the Ezrahite. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul has had enough troubles and my life has drawn near to Sheol. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more when they are cut off from my hand. You have put me in the lowest place, in dark places, in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves, Salah. You have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I've spread out my hands to you. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Salah. Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave and your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted, 
and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They have surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me all together. You've removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. Now, one writer, I was looking for, for ways to kind of break this psalm up. One writer uh, divided it up this way. 88, 1 through the first part of verse 9. Then 88 through the latter part of verse 9. We'll just call it 9b to verse 12. And then 88 to 13 through 18. Now you might say, why that division? Why that division? Because each of those begin with a section of them crying out to the Lord. In verse 1, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. You see that. In the latter part of verse 9, you see that. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. And then in verse 13, But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help. And in the morning, all my prayer comes before you. So in each section, you see them crying out to the Lord. You see that in each instance, here. So you have a statement of, of crying to the Lord, and each of these sections records his great grief. After reporting that they cry, it reports their grief. It reports, uh, it uses different words. It will use Psalm 88, uses more synonyms. For death than any passage in the Bible. Verse, verse 1 again. O Lord, the God of my salvation. He views God as his salvation, even though he's not getting an answer to his distress. I've cried out by day. And in the night before you, to wait to say in the day and the night, that takes the two opposite things. And if you cry out in the day, the night, that's saying you're crying out all day. And, and remember we said when you take two opposites, that's a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M, where you take the two extremes and it encompasses everything. It encompasses them and everything in between. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul has had enough troubles and my life 
has grown near to Sheol. Now, as I talk about his desperate dilemma, when he uses terms like Sheol in verse 3, that is a reference to the place where the dead go. He is near death. He is overwhelmed with the burden of life. And there is no rescue unless God rescues him. And he says, I am, I am like those, I'm reckoned among those who go down to the pit. Now that term pit is going to be used in verse 4. It will be used again in verse 6. In the lowest pit. Now this is a word used in the Old Testament to talk about Joseph's brothers throwing him in the pit in Genesis 37. It is also used of Potiphar putting Joseph in the dungeon in Genesis 40 and 41. Even though it's translated in different words in the English translation, it's the same Hebrew word. The word pit in Genesis 37, the word dungeon, Genesis 40, verse 15, and 41, 14, I believe. And the point I'm trying to make is there's a comparison between Joseph's experience at the hands of his brothers and his experience at the hands of Potiphar. In both cases, he's thrown into a pit. Who was another prophet who was thrown into a pit in the Old Testament. Now, this, at this point, I have to remember uh, something David told me earlier. He said, if you see Deborah's hand up, she has to keep it elevated to a small circle. <laughs> and she's not answering the question. And so, uh, normally I would have taken that and she wants to answer. But, but the pit, who was thrown into a pit in the Old Testament? Jeremiah. Jeremiah was in Jeremiah 38 in particular a sister. Now so this refers to Joseph being thrown in the pit it refers to Jeremiah being thrown into the pit but most of the time or at least uh, yes a little bit more than half of the time I believe the word pit is in reference to death. It's in reference to death. Isaiah? Is it used in Jonah? It is used, um, I do not have it in my notes that it is used in Jonah. It may have been Isaiah. Uh, you think it is there? I said it should be. It should, well, yeah, if it's not, yeah, it should be. Yeah. Um, so, Sheol, the pits, uh, these are synonyms for death. Now, I want you to think about that illustration. I want to come back to that later, okay? I want to come back to that. But just right now, that's a synonym for death. And it's used of Joseph and Jeremiah. And the Bible says, Forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in, a gra in the grave. When you remember no more, they are cut off. From my hand. In verse 6, you put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest place. 
in the depths. In the depths. Now, again, he, he's, I don't know if we got enough room on that board to write all the synonyms for death. Um, maybe I should say you've got the basic outline of verse 1 through 9a, 9b to 12, and 13 through 18. We've got the same basic we got the basic outline, so I'm just going to write down a few more synonyms for death as he explains his situation. He talks in verse 5 about the grave. About the grave. He talks in verse 6 about the lowest pit and dark places. The, the lowest pit, it's really the same word, but dark places. There are several references in the psalm to darkness. There are several references in the psalm to darkness. And it says, your wrath has rested upon me. And you, uh, I am afflicted with all your waves. But um, I wanted to make a point here about the word depths. This word depths is used in the Psalm of Moses in Exodus 15 and verse Exodus 15 and verse 5 and Nehemiah 9 and verse 11. Okay? This is a reference to the Exodus. But it's a different kind of reference to the Exodus than what we see in most Psalms. And let me explain. Most of the Psalms, God's salvation of the Psalmist or God's work in the present day of the Psalmist is somehow compared to God's deliverance of the people from Egypt. But in this case, in these verses, the ones who are being cast into the depths are the Egyptians, not the Israelites, but that's the Egyptians. And this is my point that I'm trying to stress. The point is, often when the Exodus is invoked in Psalm 88, either this man's experience is being compared to the Egyptians and what they experienced as a judgment from God, or it is being compared to Israel's experience before they were delivered. It is a different kind of thing here in Psalm 88. And it says in verse 7, Your wrath, your wrath has rested upon me. And you're, you have afflicted me with all your waves. It, it, it's like one wave has come and knocked him off balance. And as soon as he gets his balance, he is afflicted with another wave. The same kind of thing will be said later in verse 17. Uh, but but when I, I think about that, verse 7, and it says... You have afflicted me with all your ways. It's just like bad trouble comes on the hill, one event after another. And I think of Job 1. Job 1, verses 13 through 19. And in Job 1, 13 through 19, what you see is that Job has a messenger. 
the only survivor of a disaster, who comes to Job and tells him that many of his livestock have been killed. And he says, I alone have left. And while that messenger is still speaking, another messenger arrives with another statement of disaster. And he says, I alone have escaped to tell you. And then another messenger comes and tells him the same thing. And three messengers reveal to him that he has lost all his livestock. Now, I know we may, that may not devastate our lives, but that was their wealth. That was all they had in, in those cases for um, income. And uh, Job has lost it all, but that's not nearly as bad. That's what a way. For when a messenger comes, and tells him, tells him that where your ten children were, they were in their house, and a great wind came and brought down the house, and they were all killed. Can you imagine experiencing all that in quick succession? Hearing that in waves as one person brings a calamity that you can't hardly grasp, you have three more to follow. I don't know if I could have survived it. And I don't know many people who could. I know when Isaiah was born. Our older boys, being 15 and 16, thought that they should get some say in the name. And they said, how about Job? And I said, no. We are not doing that to this innocent child. And, uh, but this is what the writer of Psalm 88 feels. And not only does he experience these troubles, not only does he experience these constant waves, not only is he with one foot in the grave, it says in verse 8, you have removed my acquaintances from me. I have become an object of loathing to them. Not only has he lost his health, if he ever had much, because he'll state later, it's been like this from my youth up, around verse 15. But, but he's, he's lost all his friends. And maybe they viewed his suffering as an indication of his sin. Maybe that's why he lost all his friends. Maybe that was it. Or maybe it was just that his sickness was loathsome. If you're caring for people that can't care for themselves at all, it, it, it takes great patience and great love and sometimes great willingness to put up with grotesque things. You have made me an object of loathing. And he says at the end of verse 8, I am shut up and cannot go out. It's almost like he's boxed in this dungeon of despair as Pilgrim's Progress 
mentions the slaw of the spawn. I mean, he's, he's just locked here. He can't get out. There's no relief. And, and he says in verse 9, My eye has wasted away because of affliction. Now, right there, pausing just in that first section from 1 to 9a, what thoughts do you all have? What ideas do you all have? Anything that you want to share or questions you want to ask? Yes, Vicki? Can you briefly, I missed the connection between deaths. Uh, the Egyptians. Yes, this Exodus 15 is the song of Moses which celebrates a victory over the Egyptians. And in this, in Exodus 15, verse 5, it is the Egyptians who were drowned in the depths of the sea. Nehemiah 11, 9, verse 11 is referring to that same incident. It's referring to that same event. And then you said this reference in verse 6 is different. Um, which, uh, verse 6? Uh, you have put me in the depths of the pit. I said it's different in what respect? That's what she's asking you. I don't know. Uh, I, I, well, he uses the same word pit. He adds a word lowest pit. That might be what I was talking about. Maybe. He's putting himself in the place of the Egyptians. I think that's how it's different, right? He's saying, I'm in the pit. Or I'm in the pit. Right? In, in verse, okay, okay. Is it, okay, that's what you're saying. Okay. Uh, okay, yes. Instead of, okay, this is different. This is what I said. I'm just, I'm having a ready recollection. What happened is usually when the Psalms echo the Exodus, they echo the salvation part, not the judgment part, okay? Yeah, that, that was pretty pivotal to my argument. So, so I'm glad you asked about that. But yes, what I'm saying is a lot of things in this psalm will echo these, these, these ideas about judgment on, the, on Egypt or even a few will, will, will affirm things that were said of Israel but, but before they were delivered, not after them. And I'm thinking, now looking at this, let me make sure I've got my right word. Uh, affliction here. Um, okay. Yes, the word affliction is like that in verse 9. <coughs> word affliction. Now, the word depth was in verse 6, wasn't it? Yes. Okay. The word depth was in verse 6. The word affliction is in verse uh, 9. Now, this word affliction. It's an example of the same kind of thing, Vicky. Uh, that this word affliction is uh, is sometimes used of Israel's affliction in the land of Egypt when Israel was slaves. Now, I want to I, I want to be accurate in representing this here. This particular word that's used is used in quite a bit of the Psalms. This word for affliction, this Hebrew word used for affliction, it's used in quite a few of the Psalms to talk about the person's personal crisis. 
I think what makes Psalm 88 different in this, it refers to time of Israel's slavery in Egypt without any kind of reference to his salvation or his deliverance, okay? There is all the affliction of Egypt without the deliverance, without the salvation. Was, was that clear? Pretty clear. Okay. Um, but he again uses one of those words for that. Now, look at verse 9. It says, I've called upon you every day, O Lord. Every day. Just like verse 1, he keeps on praying. Keeps on praying. I've, I've, I've called upon you every day. I spread out my hands to you. And that is often the posture of prayer in the Bible. You know, we see it in the Psalms quite a bit. Uh, in Exodus 9, verse 29. Exodus 9, 29. Moses said, when he left Pharaoh's presence, I will go and I will spread out my hands to the Lord. And the Lord will answer. And, and so often that was done uh, in prayer. And he said, my eye is wasted away because of affliction. I've called upon the Lord every day. I spread out my hands to you. Will you do wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Uh, by the way, this word for dead in verse, in verse, uh, or excuse me, the word for departed spirits that's used here. Departed spirits, in verse 10, it's another term in reference to death. It is the term Rephaim. Now, there are places in the Bible that that is used of an ethnic group, the Rephaim. We don't know anything about them really that, that I remember uh, from archaeology, but the Rephaim. Uh, also, though, is in four or five instances, that word is translated giants in the Old Testament to talk about how David and his men fought with giants. Uh, but sometimes that word is used, and this is the transliteration, the Hebrew transliteration of the term, but sometimes the word is used for departed spirits. Departed spirits. And that's the case here. Departed spirits. Uh, I'm just, main thing I want you to know, it's another term for dead. But but let me read, David. Uh, the word dead in verse 10 uh, looks like it's used a lot more in the scriptures than the departed spirits. Yes, uh, the term, let me look at, with, yes, the word dead um, that's used. Um, I mean, I've got to use like 800 sometimes. Yes, yes, I, I think that you're you're right. I'm having trouble uh, picking out. Oh yeah, yes, okay, I've got you. And uh, I didn't know it was used 800 times, but but it's but it is a but, but your point is that we should add it to the list. Okay, and you're right. 
If, if the word Jews dated hundred times, it's worthy of a mention there on the board. Uh, but so many synonyms for death. And he's going to use a couple of more in these passages. He's going to talk about um, Abaddon in verse 11. And that is the transliteration of a Hebrew word. That is a word, Abaddon, that is a rarely, uh, it, it's not really used often in the Bible, but it's used um, right there in verse 11. And it's talking about the pit, it's talking about destruction, it's talking about death. And uh, in verse uh, 12, this place is called a place of darkness. All these synonyms for death, darkness, and then verse 13, or verse 12, also it is called the land, the land of forgetfulness. Land of forgetfulness in verse 12. So all these passages uh, giving synonyms for death. But, but I want to ask you a question. I want to read this. I want to read verses 10 through 12 again. And I'm going to ask you a yes-no question at the end, okay? Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Salah. Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? And your faithfulness in Abaddon, will you your wonders be made known in darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Is the answer he expects to that question yes or no? No, okay, it's no. The answer he's expecting in verses 10 through 12 is no. That death is not a state in which we praise God. And look at Psalm 6, verses 4 and 5. The same kind of argument is used in Psalm 6, verses 4 and 5. It says, Return, O Lord, and rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. There is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks. Same kind of argument here. In Psalm 30 verse 9. Psalm 30 verse 9. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? That was Psalm 30 verse 9. Now, I'm not saying that's the end of the story. The Bible story on that subject, I'm just saying that's the answer expected in context. Usually throughout the Bible, things like God's loving kindness and God's faithfulness. And by the way, it is very interesting that both of those key words, loving kindness and faithfulness, which are mentioned right here in verse 11, both of those terms will be used seven times, seven times in Psalm 89, the next psalm. The next psalm is going to stress these two words strongly. And the text says, Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave and your faithfulness in Abaddon? 
But the answer again is expected is no. And he says in verse in verse 13, But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. God, he's crying for help constantly, just like he did in verse 1, just like he did in verse 9. I have cried out for help. In the morning, my prayer comes. Oh Lord, why? Why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face? In the midst of his pain, he is pouring out the question, why? Why? And and like we said earlier, he doesn't mention any enemies in this psalm. His friends have forsaken him. But he doesn't mention enemies persecuting him. And he wonders why God doesn't deliver him. And why God doesn't rescue him. Why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face for me. And these troubles that he's describing, it's always been true in his life. In verse 15, I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors, I am overcome. In one of the books that I've read regularly for this class in Psalms, the writer in the conclusion of talking about one of the Psalms said, this Psalm has meant so much to me in my life. And he went on to explain his experiences. Because of some health problems, and I, and I and I'm not remembering every word. But because of some health problems, both his legs were amputated in his teenage years. Now that would be tough at any point. But can you imagine a teenager dealing with that? He lost both his legs. And he talked about his grief. And he talked about how that particular song had helped him and strengthened him in the midst of that grief. And so that writer could have identified with these words. I have been afflicted and about to die for my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They have surrounded me like water. Verses 16 and 17 remind me of verse 7 where it says you've afflicted me with all your waves. Remember that? You've afflicted me with all your waves. Hear what you find. The only answer to this question why that's asked in verse 14 is a new round of trials. Why? And things get worse. And not better. And he says in verse 18, you have removed lover 
and friend, far from me, my acquaintances are in darkness. The last word of this psalm, not only in the English translation there, not only in the New American Standard, but also in the Hebrew is darkness. There is darkness all day long. One translation that is a little bit looser sometimes, but conveys the idea here. It's one that none of us have. Um, I've never seen a copy of it in the stores. Darkness is my only companion left. That's what the ESV says. It says that too? It says my companions have become darkness. Okay, my companions have become darkness. Okay. That wasn't the ESV I was meaning to quote because I knew a lot of people here had that. But uh, that was the Jerusalem Bible that I quoted. Uh, But... um, but darkness is the only friend he has left. No psalm ends on a more dismal note. Now, I want to ask you something. As we have dealt with psalms that deal with personal grief and suffering, how do almost all of those psalms that deal with personal grief and suffering end? How do they, how they usually end? Is regardless of how dark they were, how painful they were, how do they usually end? What was it? Praising God. Praising God. Yeah. They end in praise, or sometimes Thanksgiving, but they end on a, a, a joyous note. This psalm strikes us as unusual because it doesn't end on that note of joy. It doesn't end. Uh, with they live happily ever after. It ends with darkness. And um, so it is, it is it's, it's really overwhelming. Now, I, I said something before, and I don't know if I have a, a, a really a, well, I do have a category here. I said God. I, 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 want, me to, I want to illustrate here. Look at verse 5, verse 6. Notice how many times the psalmist is praying and he addresses the term you to God. Uh, in verse 6, you have put me in the lowest pit. In verse 7, he uses the term your wrath has rested upon me and you have afflicted me. So he uses both the term your and you. In verse 8, you have removed my acquaintances far away. And you have made me an object of loathing. Um, and in verse in verse 11, will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Um, the same kind of thing in verse 12, but particularly uh, in verse 15. I suffer your terror, terrors. I suffer your terrors. Your burning anger has passed upon me. Your terrors have destroyed me. And in verse 18, you have removed lover and friend far from me. He uses you and your... This is what we mean when we say God is behind his suffering. I don't think he's blaming God. I think he is perplexed with God. He knows God rules the universe. And God is all-powerful. 
And God can stop suffering when He desires. And why? Why? Because His pain continues. Now, I have lived a pretty easy life. One thing that illustrates that is I'm 60 years old. My two parents and my wife's two parents are still alive. How many people experience that? You just don't, you don't even have that very often. I have not stayed in the hospital one night since I was five and had hernia surgery, which, which I'm doing well from. <laughs> uh, but I just, and even then, even just emotional things and difficulties. There have been some, but they've been fewer than most anybody I know my age. What would it be like for people for whom this is life? What would that be like? I can remember a nurse who's a Christian one time telling me the story of a person who had a muscular disease so bad that they were, that their body was drawn so tightly that it was almost like they were constantly in a ball, you know. And they, they looked at this person and they knew, and this was a person that was relatively young. They were around 30. And, and uh, uh, but they found something wrong with him and he was so relieved it was no big deal. And she said, I wonder to myself, if every breath I took was painful, whether I would want to go on or not. I mean, I, I just, I can't imagine that. And may God have mercy on those who live that. I, I just can't imagine the pain. Now, I tell you one thing that reading a song like this leads us to do. Be thankful for simple everyday life. I have not had the nerve, and I, and I don't think I will, I'm not a moviegoer anyway, but to see this movie on child abduction, somebody here in this church who saw it told me, it's going to take me a while to get over that. I, I don't know if I can see it, even though I appreciate them standing against it. But every day we wake up in peace in our own house, and we're not somebody else's slave being oppressed and mistreated is a reason to give thanks to God. And we, in the last congregation I was in in Florida, had a man who was in Nigeria who raised money to get, to get a well. In his village, he grew up in Africa. And when they got it, they were ecstatic. They were ecstatic. Now think about that when you go over and turn over the faucet. They were before then walking seven miles each way to get water. It shows us how much we've got to be thankful for and how much we take for granted. God forgive us. But 
There were three points that were made about this psalm that I thought were, were very worthy to consider and very easy to give kind of take-home points about this before we get into some other things. Yes, Vicki. I'm sorry, I hadn't allowed you any questions. Go ahead. It's an organizational question. Did you mean to put loving kindness and faithfulness under Exodus? I, I, I did. Because those events are demonstrated in the Exodus, in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Those are the prime Old Testament illustrations of those events. But they are absent from his life, okay? Yes. Now, that, that's, I'm glad you caught because I did not spell that out before. I did not spell that out. But yes, I did mean to put loving kindness and faithfulness over under the Exodus because those qualities are praised and the Lord reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, full of loving kindness. And truth, it may say some versions of truth, some versions of faithfulness, but it's the same Hebrew word. One, one's masculine, one's feminine. But yes, that is supremely revealed in the Exodus. And in this case, this case in Exodus 34, uh, verses 6 and 7, um, these things that are so central in the Exodus are missing from his life. And so it's another case, kind of Exodus turned upside down in this song. And then, so thank you. Thank you for that. Now, one writer makes this point. Does anyone, anyone want to take a picture of that before we erase that, as, as Vicki calls it, organization? Um, <laughs> quite, quite, quite beautiful organization. Uh, if anyone wants to take a picture of that with their notes, I'll give you a second. Becky, you did earlier, didn't you? So if anyone needs a picture and doesn't, it's Becky. Yeah. You know, it's, it's always kind of, I'm sensitive as a speaker, but I ask for, we'll take a picture, you know, but like that. Hurts hurt me. Gary, you have a question? Uh, I had a comment. I, I had some notes in here from studying this previously, and I don't know if this would help in the context of anything, but uh, the in the beginning of the psalm, it says that this is a contemplation of Heman, the Ezra Hite, and then uh, Psalm 89, Ethan the Ezraite. Yes. These are men that are spoken of in uh, 1 Kings 4, verse 31, as being wise men. And yeah. Solomon was compared as being wiser than these men. Mm -hmm. And then also how Solomon in his writings mentioned that with much wisdom comes much grief. I don't know if that would fit in with. Okay, it's a good thought. Um, they're also mentioning chronicles. A couple of times. It's hard. We don't really know anything about Heman and Ethan outside of outside of a couple of a couple of references. And, and even then, some of those references are a little bit. We don't know if it's always dealing with the same person in some of them. But but you're right. There is an Ethan mention in First Kings four when it's praising Solomon's wisdom that it surpassed even this. And so you, it, 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 that may well be the case. Now, in the heading of the next psalm, there's also a connection as well. It says Ethan the Ezraite. Uh, in that here, it is it is um, Heman the Ezraite. But then Ethan, and you may have already said that, but that's the title of Psalm eighty-nine. Well, I guess my point was 
what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, uh, I don't know, for 118, where he says, where much wisdom is, there's much grief. So I, I know that really smart people have a hard time relating to other people because they have a very hard time finding other people that are as smart as them that they can relate to and have relationships with. So they, they live a lonely, dark existence. And I was wondering if it might be the same for him, having such wisdom and knowledge and seeing things. I thought about that point here. I thought about it that way. Um, I do think he's got greater problems though than just a higher IQ. That may not have helped any, uh, but, um, but I think with all these descriptions of how desperate his dilemma is, it, you can't take it and give a clear diagnosis but it sounds like it's hard to say a problem he doesn't have. He has social problems. He doesn't have any friends, per se, per se, team. He has um, physical problems, as all these verses say. This expression, when I grew up, one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel, and, and you've probably heard equivalents of that. And, and, and at the same time, he spiritually, it's not, he's just trying to figure this out. And, and so he's got problems in every conceivable way. But I do appreciate that thought. And that is a, and that's something maybe I need to think about more in regard to that. But, but um, here are a couple of points that I found um, very interesting before we get into things like how Jesus fulfills this song. It is, uh, first of all, that this ending, Psalm 88, shows us unrelieved suffering. Okay, unrealized suffering. Okay, unrelieved. Is that close? It's close. Okay, okay, let's do it. Okay. Unrelieved suffering. Could be a person's lot. Not all stories end happily ever after in this life. Now, I want to ask you something in seriousness, uh, but it's it's going to be a secular illustration. Um, I know that we have all kinds of age groups here, and raise your hand if you identify these people. Okay, you know who, do you know who Babe Ruth was? How many people recognize that? Okay, I think that's every hand that went up. Okay. Hank Aaron. We got most hands, we got some younger people in the back who need to be tall. But Hank Aaron. Tony Canigliero. Two hands. I see two hands. Did you raise your hand, Miss Dorothy? I think I <laughs> Okay. Let me tell you his story. He grew up in Boston. He was, from his earliest days, a Boston Red Sox fan. Baseball in the 60s and 70s was America's most popular sport. When he was 65, excuse me, 1965, okay, a little big difference. 
1965, he was 20 years old. He was 20 years old. And he became the youngest person in history to lead the American League in home runs. Playing for his hometown team, it is a dream come true. And he is at 20 years old, younger than everyone else. He is the home run leader in the American League. He hit 100 home runs faster, at least at that time. I do not know if this is true today, but it was, this was true up until just a couple of years ago, and I assume this is still true. He hit 100 home runs faster than anyone in baseball history, including Ruth, who some of you know has been the first few years as a pitcher, including Ruth, including Gary, including Hank Aaron and Willie Mays. He hit more home runs. Before, he, hit, he reached 100 home runs at a younger age and hit fewer at-bats than anybody in baseball history. And I can remember my dad telling me this story when I was young, that it was... 1967 and there was not even in the major leagues a rule that you had to wear a batting helmet at that time. He was hit in the head with a fastball. No one has ever stated it was intentional. Anybody was throwing at him. But he was hit in the head. A person who watched it said that he kept thinking, move Tony, move He kept hanging there. It hit him in the head. He almost died on the field. He almost died. He was out of commission for largely the next two or three years. In 1970, he becomes comeback player of the year in Major League Baseball. He hit 36 home runs. Now life is going great. He's got everything together. But after 1970, he was traded to the California Angels. He was a member of the Red Sox, not just because they drafted him, but that was his love. That was all he ever wanted to be, a player for the Red Sox. It was his dream, and he had a great season. And they traded him, and it crushed him emotionally. The rest of his career, he hit six more home runs. Six more home runs. And he retired. I don't remember the exact year. With all of his life experiences, he had a lot to share and a lot to speak. And there was an opening for... A Red Sox radio announcer. Now, 
I'm going to tell you, in the 1970s and 80s, radio announcers of baseball games were celebrities. I mean, now they may not be known because so many games are on TV. Back then, when there was so little TV, I mean, people like that were celebrities. And um, I don't know if anybody remembers names. Well, you remember Harry Carey, but he was really famous on radio before TV ever came along. And uh, Jack Buck and names like that. Because now he's got a son that is an announcer. And uh, um, um, who's the guy in California? Vince Scully. Vince Scully, yes, Vince Scully. Anyway, uh, Tony Canigliaro interviewed the Red Sox radio announcer. We're going to have a main color person and have an ex-player comment upon the game. And with all his speaking ability and with all his life experiences, he beat everybody for the job. And riding back after he got the job, the person who was speaking to him all of a sudden noticed that he wasn't talking. And he had a stroke. Never exercised that job one day. And hung on eight years of life before he died in 1990 at the age of 45. What I'm saying, not every story ends happily ever after. And that is, that is heartbreaking, but it's true. Not every story ends happily ever after. And unrelieved suffering may be a person's lot in life. But I want to tell you something else, though. He does not quit praying. He does not quit praying. In verses 1 and 2, he kept on praying. In verse 9, he kept on praying. In verse 13, he, he, he prayed day and night. He prayed all day, as it can be translated in verse 9. Every morning, it was a priority with him to pray. He does not quit praying. He refuses to give up on God in spite of the fact there is no relief for his pain. He still keeps on praying fervently. He keeps on looking to God. As some have said the Satan's question in Job 1 verse 9. Does Job fear you for nothing? Well, will anybody keep serving you when all these good things are took, took away, taken away? Well, will anybody keep on serving you? This writer shows us yes. And he gives us encouragement that yes, we can continue through difficult times. We can continue through times of crisis. We can do that. But another thing about the psalm we might, couldn't prove it from this psalm alone. Well, not might, we couldn't prove it from this psalm alone. 
But I think Psalm 88 drives us to a belief in heaven. When we get to Psalm 91, when we get to Psalm 91, you know what you're going to ask? Has the author of Psalm 91 ever met the author of Psalm 88 and vice versa? Because Psalm 98, Psalm 88 is darkness all day long and Psalm 91 sounds like light all day long. And they're close, they're almost back to back in this book. Is that by accident? No, it's not by accident. But the point is, the fact that there are some who trust in God and who serve God and don't give up on fearing God, the fact some do this in spite of the fact that their life is constant pain and constant suffering implies that God will bless the righteous in some way, some shape, form, or fashion beyond this life. Now, the New Testament teaches that specifically. We'll show some of that in a moment. But I want to tell you there are hints of that in the Old Testament. Remember we said in verse 4 and verse 6 that that word pit, that word pit is mainly used in the Old Testament for death. But it also refers to Joseph being thrown in a pit by his brothers. Being thrown in a dungeon by Potiphar. Being Jeremiah being thrown in the pit in Jeremiah 38. Do you know what happened? They're lifted out of the pit. Even those experiences foreshadow the resurrection. We could go into more detail about that. But I think they foreshadow the resurrection of Jesus. Now, any questions right there? Okay. How does Jesus How does Jesus fulfill Psalm 88? How does he fulfill Psalm 88? Well, David, you might have had your hand up there. Were you, were you, were you scratching or anything? I was thinking about it. Okay, you think about, uh, thinking about scratching? Thinking about, <laughs> I, I wasn't scratching, but I was thinking about raising my hand. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, we certainly see Jesus praying to God a lot. Yeah. Sometimes all night in prayer. It's okay. kind of tagging on to what you just said. Okay. That statement, statement verse one, I cry day and night. I cry day and night. Psalm 22, verse 2, says the same thing. He cries day and night, not heard. Psalm 22 was quoted a lot of times in the New Testament of Jesus. Okay? So that's right. Look at verse 3. Oh, go ahead, Gary. Did you have your hand? Uh, I, was, I was just thinking, Jesus said before he left the earth, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Okay. So we have that to hang on to when we're in, in the pit. 
Exactly. I mean, his words can give us hope. And we're going to come back around to that uh, in just a moment. But, like, in verse 3, he says, My soul, my life is full of troubles. My life is full of troubles. In Mark 14, Mark 14, verses 33 and 34, He took with Him Peter and John and James and John and began to be very distressed. And He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Mark 14, 33 and 34. His soul is full of troubles. Okay, verse Psalm 88, verse 5. Forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, they are cut off. They are cut off from your hand. Do you remember Isaiah 53? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him and by His stripes we are healed. In Isaiah 53 verse 8, the Bible says He was cut off from the land of living. Same word! Same word! Just as this psalmist feels cut off, Jesus was cut off. And we saw too and we felt sympathy for the psalmist as he was shunned by his closest friends when Jesus is arrested in the garden. Even though the disciples had just recently vowed great loyalty, they all forsake him and flee. All of them. They all run away. Jesus knew what this talked about. He knows what this talks about. We said earlier, we said earlier, Psalm 88, verses 10 to 12, all expect no is the answer. They all expect no. In Psalm 88, will you perform wonders for the dead? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be known in the darkness, in the land of forgetfulness? All those questions should be answered with a no. But in Jesus, the answer is yes. And this is like, you know, Gary said, I will never leave you nor forsake you just a moment ago. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Why can he say that? Because he not only experienced the pain of Psalm 88, but Jesus raised from the dead. And all these synonyms for death that are given in this psalm are broken and defeated by Jesus They're broken and defeated by Jesus. And the Bible tells us that darkness, darkness is His companion 
As Jesus is on the cross, the Bible tells us that darkness engulfed the land from the third hour to the sixth hour in Mark 15, verse 33. Now, I, I want to tell you, and I know you probably have already thought this. It is not fair that somebody's life would be so miserable. I feel that in reading it. Probably do. If this was me, I can't imagine how much I would feel that way. Was it fair that Psalm 88 in a lot of ways, it's the life of Jesus. Is that fair? Is it fair that God sent His Son to experience life's worst? He was crying day and night and sometimes His prayer wasn't answered the way He prayed. He was full of trouble. He was cut off. He was shunned by those closest to Him. Darkness was his only companion. Jesus provides the answer. Through Jesus, the darkness of Psalm 88 can be changed to the light of Psalm 81. Psalm 91, excuse me. Psalm 91. We will see that more. I know... I kept you long. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't get to touch upon several things I wanted to, but you all have been very patient. Do you have a question or an added comment? As we did? You stepped out, Gary, and we made some great points on what you said. So, you know, you leave you for a second and you, you miss them all, but then you'll come with you after. Any thoughts? We are so thankful you're here, Scott. So thankful everybody is here. We have Annie visiting with us from New York. Um, if y'all don't know, she knows some of you. She's kin to some of you, but I haven't seen her in a long time, so it's good to to see her. And um, so, uh, Miss Wilma, you have done a good job. Well, you are very. I think sitting here listening to you, I and my brain is going crazy, but. You did a great job. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. It's very kind of you to say. And uh, let's have a prayer as we close. Oh, Lord, our God. We read these man's, this man's words and our heart aches for him. And our heart aches for people that we know like him who seem constantly to be walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And we have even a few like that sick in this congregation. As soon as one thing is healed, another thing goes wrong. And God have mercy on them and heal them and strengthen them. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the salvation he brings. We thank you for the light at the end of the tunnel that he provides. We thank you that through him, those who have died praising you 
may live forever praising you. We need you. We, we love you. Hold us in your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.